reading from the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to, to give you, a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you, tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and on his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this, law before the Lord our God as he commanded us. That will be our righteousness. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over, you, over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you, and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. 
The Lord did not send his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to the thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to the following commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine, and olive oil, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor will any of your livestock be without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare for you. The word of the Lord. The kids are invited to go outside with Kelly and have a kids lesson. I set before you today life and death, blessing and curse is where the book of Deuteronomy is heading. And this passage for us this morning sort of names for us that what does it mean to fall towards death and towards curse, and what does it mean to move towards life and goodness, and what are the temptations along the way. But the reading that Chris and I read began with the phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And that's the teaching that Jesus uh, pulls out for his greatest commandment, as we talked about last week. Part of what happened uh, last week was I was not very happy with my sermon. I thought I had a good start and then a long detour into not a lot of good things. And so I thought that the, uh, the Jews recite the Shema in the AM and the PM every day. And so we'd have a PM version of it in which I could maybe make amends for the ways in which I went astray. And then Brian came into my office today and he said, hey, I just want you to know last week was one of your best sermons ever. Um, which shows how little I know. Um, yeah, that's this. That's, that's true. Um, uh, but that is, that's part of the struggle with this today is sort of returning to that text again to sort of clarify and go over some of what that greatest commandment might mean to us as well as moving into seven. As many of you know, in the fall, we will kick off with um, the Sermon on the Mount as we get into September. And so we are only in Deuteronomy 7. So we have a lot to get through to get to the fall. Um, uh, 
there's a, after 13 through like 25, that's sort of a secondary law that may not be as important for us to spend as much time on. But um, yes, we have not made it far. I was proud of how far we had made it at one point, And now here we are in Deuteronomy 7 with little to go. Um, but this is where we are. And one of the things that I wanted to pull out for us is, is this way in which God has, has set before these people this, this path in this way. And what he says to them is hear Israel. And we talked about this last week, is it's hear a people. And one of the things that we heard Brian read from the scripture uh, during um, uh, the music time from Second Peter is that in the New Testament too, God is forming a people a polity, a politic, a group in the world. And so often we pull Christianity into sort of this individualistic phase in which God sort of redeems individual souls, which is true, but we miss this overarching thing that God wants to form a people in the world, that God wants to make a people who can witness to his reign, which we now call the, the kingdom of heaven, in, in New Testament terms, or, or the world to come, or the new creation in the world that they can be people who aren't bound by the same forces of death and destruction as everybody else is. And in some sense, having been freed from death, having been freed from sin and slavery, they can have a new set of imagination. There's several theologians I like who keep expressing that death is one of the predominant concerns of life that drives us to many of our short-sighted sins, whether we're aware of it or not, um, uh, and when we miss that we've been set free from that, Christians too can live in that way. And so being a polity in the world that knows of a world to come, of an age to come, of a new promised land, a new creation that God is giving to us, enables for us things that are not there for other people. And this is part of what I was trying to argue about the Ten Commandments is, is if they were just good moral advice for everyone, they wouldn't begin with, because the Lord your God rescued you from Egypt. That there are particular commands for people to live a way of life in the world. And part of what I've been hinting at is I think the Sermon on the Mount for us forms that sort of reset of the law that Moses performed for Israel, that he gets up and he expounds the law to them. So too, Jesus gets up and expounds the law to us as his new people. It's why he calls forward the disciples. So the passage begins with the Shema, hear Israel, listen. And I was thinking about the narrative structure of the books we've gone through is that, is that when we went through numbers, there was, this, there was this way in which we tried to conceive of Israel as one person, not as many people, as one character in the story. And as one character, they were going through the, um, for lack of a better word, the therapy of releasing the habits they had learned in slavery so that they could be a people who could take a new land, free from that. And so because of the habits they had learned in slavery, they sometimes would say it would be better to be back there because we had garlic, which is an odd thing to think. And yet we, as Christians, when we are freed from sins and when it's, when it's um, I've given up my, my addiction to to sports, my cell phone, pornography, or whatever you want to pick, is that we go, sometimes we go, it may be nice to be free from that, but it was sometimes nice to be able to zone out for an hour 
It was sometimes nice to be able to overconsume alcohol with people who I thought were my friends. It was sometimes nice is that we have the same imaginative reset. And so the book of Numbers, I think, challenged us to think of the ways in which God is purifying us to be a people who can reside. But going back to the book of Leviticus, I have nothing to say. <laughs> I don't know what we were doing there. But going back to Egypt, uh, going back to Exodus, what I think what we heard was the God who hears, same word, different tense, the cries of his people and rescues them. And so as God has heard Israel, the people caught in bondage and in slavery and brought them to freedom, so call, God calls us and rouses us to hear God, to hear the disclosure of the one who heard us. And I think in this narrative sense, it begins to make more sense, right? If, if, if God is one who sits enthroned in heaven and certainly would have the right to, to say, hear me and do as I say, but it actually turns on the God who has heard you in your pain and distress, now asks you on the other side to hear him. We'll return to this thought at the end of the sermon, but I think that there's this mirroring in this relationship to God that humanity and God are more entwined than we think they are. Um, they're more uh, reciprocal in their relationship. I've heard you, now you hear me. And one of the things I wanted to touch on from last week is this, there's like four or five words that this sermon is going to be about with some quotes burst around them. Um, this counts as one, by the way, sorry. Um, alone and one, those are two ways of translating that here, your Israel, the Lord, your God is one. Uh, here, uh, Israel, the Lord your God, is, is alone. And in one sense, it's a pushing back on the temptation to serve other gods, which we get plenty of warnings about in the first five books of, or first five chapters of Deuteronomy and much of the Old Testament. And we also get um, the sense of oneness. And one of the things I tried to talk about last week was that oneness is this constancy of knowing a God who's faithful and does not change, who does not move the goalposts, but who remains in his goodness and that's something you can trust in. See, the, the ancient gods, and, and there's, this goes all the way up until, um, really until Christianity sort of sets the West, um, yeah, I think that's probably fair to say, are more temperamental in their disclosures. They can do as they wish. And many Christians, I think, have that conception of God, but, but what happens is we're actually more uh, classically bound in our theism uh, in the sense that God is constant in himself. Our God is not one who shifts goalposts or changes directions at a will, but is one who shows fidelity that we can trust in. And I think it's dangerous for us to lose that. Uh, there is a movement amongst Christians today to sort of lose that as sort of a, this is way too nerdy. A platonic overhaul from early Christianity and da-da-da-da. But I think it's wise that we retain that truth because it will give us a God who is solid for us and that doesn't shift as the winds do. But this quote that I had last week that we didn't get to it, from Stephen Hawking, I always think of when I think of the oneness of God. If we do discover a complete theory, and Stephen Hawking uh, was the, um, what's the correct title for him? Yeah, I mean, but he's the guy in the wheelchair. Um, for many people, that's how you'll remember him. The other is, he's an astrophysicist. Is that what he is? Um, theoretical physicist. A genius. 
um, uh, he wrote a brief history of everything that was turned into a movie that was then turned into a book about the movie, all titled A Brief History of Everything. Anyways, um, he said this, uh, if we discover a complete theory, it should in time be understandable and broad principle by everyone, not just a few scientists. Then we all... Then we shall all, philosophers, scientists, and just ordinary people, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we in the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God. There's two things I like about this quote. One is, is that Hawkins knows two things that are, are, are are religious in this principle, or at least Christian, is that the truth that God displayed for us, the reason that we found, is, is graspable by everyone. It's not something that just lives in the halls of power. It's not something that just the theologians have, but that can be conversed by all people. A wandering herd of people at the edge of the desert are the people whom this truth is for. The second thing is that, is that if we can find answers to these questions, we have some sense in knowing the mind of God. Now, I don't know exactly what Hawking meant, but I think what we're finding in, the, in, in reading through things like Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, and that you shall love him sort of in, in perfect direction within yourself, what we're finding in undivided self is that we are finding that God is revealing to us how and who we should be in the world that we're finding the truth of who God would have us be. The one thing that I think he misses is if scientists were able to discover this, it would be discussable by almost no one, um, except for probably Stephen Hawking. Um, but what God has done has come to us and revealed that. He's got the order of revelation wrong in some sense. If it were us for up to us, to make this up, we would find a way to wall it off from some people. Most often, those people, and you can fill in whoever you want for those people, um, but we don't share universal revelation well. And what God does in his disclosure to humanity is shares it in a way, and it's, it's because it comes from that direction. Uh, Hawking, at this moment, is thinking we can build up to that. Uh, it's like the Tower of Babel. We'll reach the heavens when in fact, what we need is God to reach to us. So that is the first one. The second one um, is habits. This goes to um, when you sit down, when you lie down, when you get up, to talk about these things often as you go. Now, the modern world, uh, as, as uh, Kara, you read productivity literature too, right, is having a bit of a habit moment, right? There's a lot of stuff on, on crafting new habits, crafting good habits, becoming habituated to different things. And the way that we do this is through sort of making things that we return to often over and over again. It's famous, um, uh, Barack Obama switched to wearing just gray suits all the time because he thought he only had so much energy to make choices over the day, so picking what to wear was, was one thing he chose not to expend it on. So he picked a habit of sort of not doing that. And so in some sense, there's a way in which habits, in the modern sense, sort of automate our day so that we can live in the truth of what we know. What, I'm what I want to say about Deuteronomy's call to habit to us, and it's not just this sit down and when we get up and tying them on ourselves and wearing them to some extent so that they're near to us. It's this notion in that habit forming towards God is what we're called to do. And so they recite the Shema in the morning and in the evening. 
Now, it's often that Christians will say, well, don't things lose their specialness when we do them more often? And I can tell you, nobody in the ancient world would ever say that. Um, The more we do them, the more they will grasp into our lives and create meaning. And one of the things that I think we've been going through the confessions, some of us, is that St. Augustine in in Book 7, somebody tells him about, I think it's St. Anthony, and he says, I was roused within myself that I wanted to go after that. And the person who told him it was happy. And he said, but they didn't know that through my own lusts and passions, I had made a chain of my slavery, and that was a habit-forming thing over and over again. Each time he returned to his lust, put a new link in the chain that enslaved him. So habits don't just work in the positive direction. They, too, work in the negative direction of bringing us back into these things. And it's, it's often, as a pastor, and it's often in the world, it's often, I think, for many of us, that we see something that inspires goodness within us, and we say, that is, shall be what I chase after. And if we're wise, we come to the expression that Augustine did, is that somebody is going to have to untangle me from these chains of habit for that to be so. If it were as simple as saying, that is beautiful, and I want that, I think we'd all be in a better spot than we This is hard because oftentimes I'm just picking on myself, but I feel like, don't we all feel that? And then you guys are like, no, we're all perfect. We, what's wrong with our pastor? We should help him. Um, so the habituation of ourselves to these things, and what one of the things that they're called to do is remember here, is to not forget what it was like to be have been freed by a God who is stronger than those habits, but who gives us new habits to fill our days. And it was a conservative thinker back ago said that, that we should form little platoons to what is good. And I think that, that what the, the thinker here is talking about, the family, is the person who sits up and gets up and, and talks about these things, is to form a little platoon of what is good in the world. That if you can have the formation, it doesn't say, and when you go out and do business with people, talk to them endlessly about these things. But you might, but in your interior life at home, when you go down, when you get up, when you sit down to eat, when you're locking upon the road, to have these conversations about these things that matter is to bring the habit forming of them into our lives. This is, um, Carla, do you want to pronounce what this is for me? Mesu, the thing they hang on doors? Mezuzah. Uh, so Jews uh, even today take this very literally, and, and you'll find these hung on the doors in their households um, to sort of remind them when they enter in and to remind them when they go out. And that's the first letter, if you remember, a couple slides back of the Shema, um, to tie them and bind them to themselves. When I was downtown um, recently, I saw uh, young Jews boys all with uh, four um, things hanging out. That's the tiz- uh, tzit, tzit. Sounds like tzatziki, the, the sauce you put on gyros, but not. Um, uh, uh, hanging out. And that, too, is another reminder to sort of form them in the way that God is near to them. And Christians, uh, we, we have a call to do this as well, but we often neglect it because it seems too performative, I think. But I think the ways in which we can bring these things closer to us to remind us in habitual ways of that God is near to us and it's what should be on our lips often is a good thing for us. The next word is story, which connects to much of what is said in Deuteronomy, is to remember the story of what God has done for us. Now, this is one of my 
quotes I think about often uh, from Stanley Harawas. Uh, he says that we live in a world with no stories. He says, my way of putting this is we live at a time, you may call it modern, if you just so desire, when we believe we should have no story, except the story we chose when we had no story. We live at a time when we believe we should have no story, except the story we chose when we had no story. We call this freedom. What he's lamenting is that you get to choose your story. And that just doesn't work, one, because the story you have when you had no story is, in some sense, a story. It happens to be a very empty and not good story. And so when you become one who can choose a story, you actually have that lingering doubt that there's a choosing in these stories. When it says in this passage, in the future when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord has commanded us? Tell them we were slaves in Egypt. The people in this point are being grafted into a narrative structure of the universe. You don't have no story. You're being brought into the story. We were once slaves in Egypt, and God brought us out. Now, we went through uh, the book Watership Down about talking rabbits because that's the way our church is. That's how we roll. Um, and one of the things that happens in these rabbit stories is they run into, I think it's four different warrens, which is the name for communities of rabbits along the road. Um, and each community has its own heirs. They meet communities that are each dysfunctioning in different ways. But one of the first communities they run into, they have um, stories of a rabbit god. This is weird to explain, um, uh, El Harab. But anyways, they have a story of a rabbit god, and they tell these stories to each other because they inspire in them, in some sense, the virtues of what it means to be a good rabbit. Humans do the same thing. Rabbits don't actually do this. The, 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 the rabbits are stand-in for humans, so let's just get that straight. Um, uh, there's a funny story I could tell about Rosie, but we'll do that some other time. Um, rabbits don't do that, but, but they're mirroring. It's, it's this idea that we tell stories to instill virtues within us, and that's sort of what is always going on in this sort of narratable universe as we're trying to instill virtues within us. So one for my family is that my great-great-grandpa, I think, who tried to come to America, wanted to go to China and got on the wrong boat. And in my family, we say, just like a Shedden, uh, drinks too much, gets on the wrong boat, ends up in America. Um, and that does not inspire virtues, but it does inspire sort of a narratable universe in which to have it. Um, and that's sort of the way in which we tell these stories. Point being is they meet this Warren that tells no stories. One of them, when they do story time, uh, one of their storytellers gets up and tells one, and they're like, well, that was clever, I guess. That was fine. And the other, the, their, their storyteller gets up and, and recites a poem that is sort of nonsense, and it ends with sort of uh, accepting death. This causes the rabbit that seems to have some sort of intuition uh, of prophecy to run away. And they're like, this warren is fine. There's plenty of food. There's plenty of goodness. These rabbits are weird, but we can learn to live with that. Um, and what happens is, is they find out that they actually live on a farm. And the farmer has figured out that if he only catches a couple of them every so often, and if he only... Um, 
and he puts out food, and he sort of placates them, that they'll hang around. The rabbits don't need to be fenced. They accept this sort of death. And what Adams, the author of this book, is pointing out to us is that when humans try to live without the stories that guide them, we were once slaves in Egypt, we begin to think death might be our friend. One of the rules in this war is you're not allowed to ask where somebody is, because somebody might get caught in the snare every so often. And if you ask where they are, you would remind them of the death that deals around them. They lack being a community of truthfulness. So Harawas' lament that we try to live as if we have no story. I think this is one of the challenges of, of, of having children today is people have this mindset that they're blank slates and they should be able to choose what they want. And really that's going to make them more neurotic and insane. But grafting them into a story is actually a much better way to handle that. And it allows them to name and craft reality in a much better way. So to live in this storied universe, why do we do these things? Because we were slaves in Egypt and God rescued us. It's to bring, in a way, community into our lives and to make it so that we don't lose our identities. The last word, uh, election. Um, this chapter 7, moving to where, instead of re-going over material, I felt I flunked on last week, um, brings us to what does it mean to be elect for these people. These people are called out of Egypt. What does it mean? And I love this, this idea that they say, because it, we were numerous. That's why God called us, right? No, you weren't numerous. No, you weren't great. No, there was nothing about you that would cause you to get saved. And this is, I think, wise for Christians to remember. Why is it we've been grafted into Jesus Christ? It's because I'm so smart, isn't it? No. It's because I'm so great. My parents were great. No. It's because God had called a previous ancestor, Abraham, who was childless and living at home in his 80s to be the beginning of this lineage. It was God's gracious choice to do so. There was nothing, if you were to set up the ancient world hierarchy, Abraham, when he chooses Abraham, that's like the bottom of it. There's nobody, there's very few people lower you could have chosen um, because he's childless and he has no line. There is no numerous to it. It's, it's God and his in ingenuity chooses someone who will never be able to look back and say, it's because we were great, right? And you'll notice, um, I think I've told this before, but Noah's called because he's blameless in his generation. Abram's called because I had to pick someone. And he's not even told to be blameless until I think the third time that sort of God ratifies the covenant with him. Very low expectations for the start. All he has to do is get up and leave his father's home. Um, that, that God had to call someone to begin this scandal of particularity, and he chooses someone, as he reminds him here, whom we could say nothing really extreme about. But on the back of the bulletin, I want to find this here, there's a quote about how election works in Judaism. And I think it's phrased a little harshly, but I think it works for Christianity too. In Judaism, election is not a gift, but rather a task. No contract with God, but rather his holy mission. No honor, but rather a heavy burden which is necessary to bear and to realize. 
Whoever has doubts about its continuing validity should reflect upon the passion of Israel, a 2,000-year road marked with suffering, and should remember keenly the servant of God who is docile like a lamb that is led to his slaughter. That's in reference to Christ. That to be this special possession, as they're called, to be called out in the world is a vocation. And it's a vocation to be God's witness in the world. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's a particular task and a particular thing in which we are called into. And so God's election here is because God loved them. You'll notice that we are called to love the Lord our God too, undivided. But the love that that the Hebrew word for love in the Shema that we're called to do is more, um, uh, you don't want to say it this way, but it, it tends to be used more contractually in the ancient Near East. Um, that they are the people who are called to sort of give honor and love up to the one who has rescued them. Which seems like a fair deal, but that's the way it is. The word used for love, for God's love for them, is more like the kind used in the Bible for when a man sees a woman that he wants. He loves her. Um, It's this attractive love, which is a total flip on what I would think. We are called to be attracted to God, not just give God the honor and love that we're supposed to give him. And, And for God, I would think that God isn't really supposed to be that into me is just because he made a mistake in choosing Abram, and that's why we were here together. And yet it's God who has a passionate love for us. And so I pick this phrase from the book of Leviticus and from uh, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, Song of Songs, is that I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. This is sort of the way in which we often figure the divine relationship. This is that mirroring I referenced at the beginning that we would get back to at the end. Hear, O Israel, I've heard your cries. I will walk among you and you will be my God and I will be your people. But the woman who figures Israel and the church in Song of Songs says, My beloved is mine. She claims God and I am his. In the relationship between humanity and the divine God, there's this way in which God is always laying claim to us. And there's a way in which we are inspired to lay that claim back. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. Bold words to speak about your God. And yet it is God who calls us to hear him the way that he has heard our cries. God lives near to us so that we can cry out that he will be our God and we will be his people, that we will speak of him as our beloved and that he is ours. Let us pray. God, you have instructed your people to hear you. And so it is for us today to hear your call on us. We are to be your people in the world. 
not because of our greatness, but because of your generous kindness. To be a people freed from slavery and sin and death and brought into the kingdom of heaven, the new creation you've begun in Jesus Christ. Allow us to have that emblazed on our doors and our hearts, to wear it with us, to be on our lips when we sit down, lie down, get up, walk about, to bind them on our foreheads. Bring to us these stories into our household. May we see as truer about us that we've been rescued from Egypt, that we have a lineage that begins in Abraham, than all the other false claims upon our life. And God, in our election, may we meet a God who loves us, cares for us, and intends for us to be his chosen people in the world. I ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.